poetry is dead. And it will always be dead. Because we have killed it. Now nah, I'm just playing. That was Nietzsche talking about God. But um, I, re I really don't think that poetry is dead. And this is the first podcast. And I really wanted to start off with this topic. Because not only is this the first podcast I've ever done solo. This is also, I believe, one of the few or only podcast out there on the internet that's like for writers trying like I'm not teaching nobody nothing like that's not the game plan here right like maybe this podcast will motivate you maybe this podcast will teach you things by by you observing and and watching the pratfalls and watching me fuck up a million times but the idea of this podcast is I'm not, this isn't like those marketing podcasts that are everywhere where they're like, you know, we're going to teach you how to do this, even though most of those people probably have no fucking idea how to do anything. But that's not what this podcast is. Matter of fact, this podcast is meant to be a conversational interview-esque podcast with authors, poets, about writing and literature and poetry, not the boring shit, like, but, like, real talk with real writers who are out there, and I haven't found a single podcast out there that's anywhere close to, uh, to doing that, and maybe the reason why they haven't done that is because it's not a viable option, right, like, maybe the whole purpose why no one's done this yet is because... They've tried and it just has it just failed. But guess what? I don't really care because I want to do this and I want to be the catalyst and the and the conduit of conduit. I'm sorry for the knowledge of this world that I I feel like it doesn't have a voice. And don't get me wrong, there's a half a million blogs out there, but where are the podcasts? Podcasting is such an important medium that's really just fucking exploded since over the last, like, what, four or five years. It's exploded to a point of, like, maximum, actually, I'm going to say maximum saturation, but I don't believe it's the case. I think there's room for plenty more podcasts, and I think that the main podcast area that's lacking in this world is through literature and poetry, because don't get me wrong, there, there's a whole um, category for literature and poetry, but the majority of podcasts there are information-based, which there's nothing wrong with. Or it's like they're reading poetry or they're reading uh, chapters from books and stuff along those lines, which is great. And we totally need that. But I don't, I haven't found a conversation-based podcast. And maybe it's because like that's what I'm really after. Because I got into podcasts... <laughs> a long time ago, I was uh, browsing the web, looking up conspiracy theories, because that's what I did when I was a teenager, and I came across these videos of, like, just, all it was was a voice over some sort of crazy music and a video, and it was, like, really captivating and really, like, crazy, I was like, wow, I really, really, really want to know, I want to know more of this shit, so I kept following it, it turns out, like, 
I was listening to all these, like, you know, Joe Rogan-style podcasts and stuff along those lines. I was like, wow, that's really entertaining. So I started listening to his podcast, only podcast I listened to at first. And from there, you know, don't get me wrong, I guess his podcast is a little bit different now, but it was originally like a comedian podcast. But he's not on there talking about, this is how you become a, a, a comic, this is how you do this. Don't get me wrong, like he talks to people and they bring up great knowledge and they drop knowledge on that podcast, but it's more of a conversation. And from that podcast, it was a launching ground where I went from there, I listened to... Joey Diaz from the Church of What's Happening Now to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, London Real. You know, I went all over the place and really my horizons like really broadened. And I started like gaining this beautiful uh, knowledge and just it, it's fun listening to podcasts. And, you know, I like podcasts because I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing anything. You know, I'm going for a walk or, uh, I'm sneaking my headphones in my ears when I was at work or along those lines. And over the years, it's like I really developed these like a whole different intuition, a whole different way I view life through just listening to these podcasts. And then I wanted to make my own podcast and it worked, right? So what was it? Not this. So about two years ago. I was working overnights at this toy store. I was also working in the daytime as a uh, apprentice butcher. But I said to this, I met this kid, and um, like we knew each other in town. Uh, he's my guy, Connor Ash. He's my sound guy. Well, future sound guy, I guess, because we met at that time, and I was like, wow, man. I was like, you know, we should do something. And we created a podcast called Enlightening Sheep. And Enlightening Sheep was a um, just an open-based conversation podcast, conspiracy theories, politics, religion, every, everything you think that we would talk about. And we kicked ass for about eight, nine episodes. So of course, of course, like three months went by, but then we crashed because, you know, everybody was on substances, you know, just having a good time, but having good times don't really make good-sounding podcasts. And, uh... We booted it back up, and now Lightning Sheep's coming back. We've actually got all the all the uh, episodes recorded, and now we're ready to launch. But this is my own little baby. You know, this right here has been something I've been thinking about for a long time. And about a month ago, I sent an email to uh, Guante. He's a poet from the Twin Cities, a spoken word style dude. Who's um, he's also a rapper, and he's he, he's kicked ass. You know. And ha he's, his videos are, like, you know, super big on, on a YouTube, and Button Poetry always promotes them. So I sent him an email, and I, I was talking to him about what does he think about the future of poetry. And he uh, his email back to me really echoed my own sentiments, because he was saying that he doesn't believe that poetry is ever going to go, like, uber-mainstream. Like, he thinks that this might be the pinnacle or a little bit larger. Like, he even joked about saying that we might see a um, an America's Got Talent for poetry. Now, you know, I, I, when I, I shot back, I was like, you know, I hope not. I hope that's not the case. I don't want to be all hipsterish, but I don't think that that sort of mainstream light 
is going to benefit the art form of poetry. But um, it was in that email that the genesis of this podcast started because I said back to him, I said, you know, I think what this, what poetry in general, right, like I guess, you know, the spoken word aspect of poetry, I said, I think what's lacking is podcasts. Because if you look at other, you know, um, styles of art, I guess you would call them, like music podcasts really just started kick, kicking off, I think, over the last year or so. And, um, and they've always had the radio, so I guess it's a different aspect. But comedy, comedy podcasts are kicking ass. And it's through those podcasts that the art form itself is being promoted. And it's not like they're not on those podcasts sitting there telling jokes. Don't get me wrong, they're just speaking honestly and fucking around with one another. But it's through those podcasts that they really, like, just push their art forward and totally did big things. Um, so I said to him, I said, you know, poets should do podcasts. And I told him I was thinking about doing my own. And really, I was kind of just spitballing at the wall here because I've thought about doing this podcast for quite a long time, but I've never actually found a way to do this. And then he, he's like, oh, that's a great idea. You should probably do that. And then here we are. And that's where, you know, I'm not saying I want to be like the Superman of, of the poetry scene, but I want this podcast to be the launching ground for poets, writers, uh, just people in that area that doesn't really have a voice. And, you know, I'm not saying in a political sense they don't have a voice. I mean, like, like nobody hears authors just speak and just talk this shit you know that there's a very weird thing where there's a disconnect and like all these comedy podcasts i feel like i'm like friends with all these comedians because i listen to their podcasts i listen to their daily struggles i listen to how they view their art form in the world but i don't have that with with literature and writing the closest i the closest there is i believe i could be wrong if there are other podcasts in that that light, just you know, send me a tweet and say, "Hey, asshole, you missed one." But the only one I know is the self-publishing podcast, which is an informational podcast because their whole thing is that they're dropping knowledge on how to self-publish and do things along those lines. But that's that's their area. But they still talk to a lot of these great indie authors, and and it's a really cool conversation. So. I think that's the closest we've ever had to a pure conversation-esque podcast. And this is going to be, <laughs> I hopefully, the first one. And to, like the reason why I wanted to talk about, for the first podcast today, about the idea that poetry is dead is because that's an idea that has like been recorded and, you know, just perpetrated so many times, like, there was all these articles in Washington Post, New York Times, that poetry is dead, and they're talking about how literature is dead, and it's just one of those things where it's almost like, I don't know if they're actually using their brains, or just a catchy headline. Because in no means is poetry dead. Poetry might actually be more popular at this very moment in time than it has been since at least the 1950s. You know, in the email I was having with Guante, 
I brought up about the beats. You know, first I brought up the um, the jazz poets from the Harlem Renaissance, and then I brought up the beat poetry. You know, with Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, um, you know, Neil Cassidy, uh, Burroughs, and uh, he said, "Yeah," but he said that nowadays might actually be, you know, more profound than it was then. And don't get me wrong, we like to romanticize past scenes like the beats, the Black Mountain poets, the surrealists, all those lines. But it's hard to envision that what's going on at this very moment is an actual scene or, or it's an actual, like, explosion of talent because the biggest scene, I think, right now in spoken word poetry, if that's what you want to call it, there's, like, two meccas as far as I know. There's, like, New York City where you got, like, you know, Sarah Kagan's out of there, Taylor Molly and a bunch of other great artists. And then you got the Twin Cities over in that general area where you got Michael Lee, you got Neil Hilborn, you got Guante, you got all these big, heavy hitters. And that's, like, a big deal. And those things, they're killing it. Like, button poetry, um, which I, I don't know how to describe them. They, they are publishing books, I believe. But they also promote videos and they, they just do everything. And what they're doing is they're totally like promoting the shit out of spoken word or, or slam, whatever you want to call it. And they're killing it. And they're like, uh, I think Neil Hilborn, he's the poet who did, um, he really did a bunch of great stuff. One of his biggest poems is called OCD. And I believe OCD that video of poetry hit 10 million views, which might not sound a lot because a lot of music has like 100 million views or a billion views, you know. Um, but for a, a video of poetry, that's like unheard of. 10 million views. And I think we can only go up. I don't think there's going to become a point where it falls apart. I think that in general as an art form, we're just constantly moving forward. And I think what we're going to see very soon, possibly even now, is the divergence from slam and spoken word. Because initially there was the big divergence we all know is page and stage poetry. Where page are poets who, you know, get published in magazines, journals, published books. And then there was the stage poetry, which is, you know, sometimes they don't even read off of a uh, piece of paper. They just narrate and recite poems and they do and that's like one of the biggest tackles of that area was the page meet stage which was the show that would have a stage poet read from his book or read from wherever and a page and a stage poet who would get up and recite their poems and that's a that's still going on it's, it's it's a great great series of readings but i think what we're going to also see is a divergence deeper between slam and between performance or between spoken word. Now, what's the difference, right? And some people would argue that there is no no difference because ah, coffee is good. But because slam really was never meant to be a style. Slam was meant to be a way to perform. Or a way to read on stage. 
but it really has in itself formed its own little genre. It's formed its own little style of poetry where you have like people who are being influenced not by older poets, being influenced by other slam poets. Like like what Guante was saying in, in the email we, we were in is that you have like all these poets originally that are big slam poets now and very big in the scene, they were inspired by the first level. They were inspired by the um, Def Jam poetry era of poetry. And that was the first time I think that slam poetry or spoken word really hit the mainstream hard. You know? Because the whole entire slam poetry started in 1984. So what was that? A decade later, we have that on television. Well, now, two decades later, you have all these new poets who, these younger kids, were being inspired by the generation that was inspired by Def Jam. So now we have this whole new era of kids out there who are doing their, like, they're totally inspired just by that. And they may, some of them don't even have inspirations of deeper poetry or page poetry, just straight on the stage. And, you know, there's good and bads of that because I found myself in the middle and, um, like, I've always found that I have, there's like an existential issue I have with my writing. Not, not my fiction and, uh, because I write fiction and I also write poetry. My issue comes with who am I? A page or a stage guy? And you don't have to pick. You can do whatever the fuck you want to. Like, the beat poets, I guess they were both, right? Because they did read from their things, but they also put great feelings and great emotion, and they used their hands. They were very, you know, very performance-like. But the issue comes is, like, when I started, I started doing all this in 2012 because I saw a tweet from this magazine called Gigantic Sequins to do a, uh, a story slam. Now, I didn't know what a story slam was. I didn't even know what a poetry slam was. I kind of did, actually. I knew what a poetry slam was because I had seen Taylor Molly on Def Jam. But I was like, eh. So I wrote a story called Burr. And, uh, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Because never, I'd never written a story to be performed or to be slammed. So I got to the Stonewall Inn in New York City, and I got on stage, and I read this story called Burn. And when I read it, you know, um, I got a lot of love for it. I ended up winning the story slam. But one of the judges said, that's great, but it reminds me of a, a slam poem and not, you know, a story. And I said, oh, interesting. So I remember we, we walked out of the... Uh, the village area, and uh, we ended up going back on the train home to Jersey, and I was sitting there, and I was thinking, thinking about, oh, could this be a, a poem? And I and I ended up looking at the story, I was like, yeah, of course it is, this fucking story sucks as a story. So I took the story, and I totally reformed it into this poem, and I, I used that poem for a while, and I began to, uh, to, to perform, but then here's, like, where my issue comes, where it was like, 
who am I and what am I going to do? Because I went to my first poetry slam. Uh, I, lo I lost, which is not a big deal because I totally had no idea what I was doing. And um, it was at Loser Slam in Red Bank, which is a great uh, slam in, in Jersey, like or slam team, slam space, whatever you want to call it. My whole issue became that then I said, screw poetry slams. I want to be a performance poet. And um, there's others out there who do that and are not on the slam circuit, I guess you want to call it, or slam scene. So I began to just do performances like everywhere, coffee shops. Um, I, did, I did a performance uh, at the Brighton Bar in Long Branch, which I would suggest to never perform poetry after music and never perform poetry at a bar or a noisy bar. That's just two no's. Yeah, I ate a bag of dicks on stage. It was pretty bad. And then I performed poetry at a, how do I say this? It was, um, it was a, uh, a drag queen restaurant bar place that was on top of this black nightclub in New York City. It was like a tour. It was like the weirdest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I was, I performed with not, I was only a poet there, of course. And I was only really got on there because... My friend John Murdoch's a comedian, but I was totally out of my element, and uh, I was on stage with like Joey Gay, who's a comedian who's been on television, um, the guy who, who started Anti-Folk, you know, so I was like, fuck, man, I just totally sucked there, too, because I was really trying to appeal to this performance, poetry side, slamish thing, and I don't think that's, that's, uh, that, that's not me, and I've come to that conclusion. Because since then, I said, screw that. I remember I sent Taylor Molly a tweet. I was like, what do I do? How do I become a, uh, a big poet person? He was like, just write a lot, read a lot, and send to magazines. And, you know, and that's what I started doing. And that's what this whole area of my life's been now, where I've been really putting all my energy and all my time into crafting my craft, as cliche as that sounds. Because what I've been doing is, just taking my poetry and writing it and totally putting my heart and soul into it. And I can always worry about the way I'm going to read this later. But my writing is meant to be read aloud. Because I do have, I have been developing a rhythm. A rhythm that I believe serves to be read out loud. And I think I've abandoned the idea that I'm going to get on stage and just perform and don't get me wrong I do have ambitions to go back into the slam circuit once the new season begins however I'm also working on being like a hybrid like a like a page poet as well like I think I think what we're going to see is a whole new generation of people who are on both levels and that's where I've been I've been like that's where I'm trying to develop I've been speaking with other poets like Brandon Deal, Charles Joseph, who uh, dropped the chapbook two months ago called Temporary Obscurity. I've been talking with them about doing a reading tour as I'm developing my first chapbook. And I really believe what we're going to see 
is more artists like this, more poets that say, hey, I really like slam poetry, it's entertaining, but I really like page poetry too, because it's cool, and the way it's worded, and the way it's, you know, everything, I'm going to do both, I'm going to do a little bit of everything, fuck it, and I think that's what we're going to see, I think we're going to see the complete divergence, and the complete, like, reshaping of the art form, that's, like, I don't care if, you know, poetry's on every television set, I don't give a shit if, like, you know, they're headlining at the PNC Art Center, or, you know, Madison Square Garden, that, that's ambitions that I don't think would serve the craft well. And I don't think by any means that that should be the case. But what I do believe, I do believe that we will see better poetry. I think we're going to see more profound shit coming out. And with all the politically charged notions, I think we're going to see a more tactful, insightful, and more abstract view of the things. Because the one big argument that the outside world has on spoken word poetry or slam poetry is the the fake emotion that a lot have. You know, not all not not the greats, but there is a select group of poets who get on stage and they sound cookie cutter and they pretend to cry and it's all these pratfalls and or they pretend to laugh on stage. It's like what they're doing is that they're crafting a great performance, but the poetry is lacking. And I think we're going to see that's going to go away. I'm pretty positive that, not that the people are going to stop doing that shit in order to get attention. That's probably going to go further, and that's going to fall to shit. But I think what we're going to see is just better, more abstract poetry. Because that's my general complaint at the moment with mainstream Poetry. There's like two sides that both fucking drive me crazy. We got some of the slam poetry. We got these these people who the, there is no act like the poetry is not actually shaped for a lot of them. It's not actually profound. It's cookie cutter, and all they're doing is on stage. They're just using emotion and using like the way they look on stage and just using performance tactics in order to make it appealing. And, you know, that's an issue because, okay, you're just doing performance art, you're not doing poetry. But on the other side of the spectrum, there's another era of, like, literary poetry, which is coming out of these universities, coming out of these colleges, and it's boring as shit because they're not talking about nothing. And they have beautiful form, beautiful rhythm, Everything is great the way they form and the way they flow, but they have nothing to speak about. And so all their poems are completely absent. Now, this isn't the case across the board, but this is a profound, profound issue. And I believe, hopefully, maybe I'm just speaking out my ass here, but I do believe that we're going to see a complete reshaping of the work. Because... I know that in this little circle I found, where it's like, um, pretty much a lot of this is coming out of the Lehigh Valley Vanguard, which is a, an awesome magazine out of PA. They've got like a bunch of poets that are like writing some great stuff. And I'm not just saying that because my poetry's been featured there, but they've got a nice little like canopy of all these poets that have something to say. And I think. 
that's the most profound thing that needs to change because there's so many people who write in general that have nothing to say, nothing. I used to do this, um, I used to do readings with this with somebody who was great at performing, but they had nothing to talk about, nothing at all. I'm talking about like it was the epitome of nothingness, like, and I'm in the same boat as Hunter S. Thompson here. When I think, in order to be a great writer, of course you need to read a lot, you do need to write a lot, but you also need to live a lot. And this is an issue in any art form, you know, like, <laughs> you, fantasy is, is great, but even in fantasy, even in any genre you want to bring up, you need to be able to have some sort of insightful experience to create a compelling piece of work. And I found that uh, in my life, I went too far down the opposite way because forever I was the guy who people knew, oh yeah, he's, he's a writer, but I didn't write. And the reason was, was because I was so busy. I was always, my whole life, it's like, I've always worked a lot. And um, I was working always like 50, 60 hours a week. And during Christmas season, when I'd work overnights as well, I was doing like 70, 80, 90 hours a week and balancing a girlfriend and a life. It, you know, those things don't, don't work. So uh, I began to party and that just wasn't making it right. But I loved it. And I, and I, I love that the feeling of chaos and, Madness, and I used to always say, like, uh, I used to always quote Oscar Wilde, and I'd be like, everything in moderation, including moderation. And I really lived for like six months just going balls to the walls right after my last relationship ended. I really went completely balls to the walls, just living life to the craziest aspect, partying, just crazy chaos, uh, trouble. And I would always tell myself, I need to do this. Because I need something to write about. But like Alan Watts said, the great philosopher from the 60s, when you get the answer, hang up the phone. Or when you get the message, hang up the phone. And he was talking about psychedelic drugs, but I think in regards to that, it was like I took that as like, all right, listen, I already got a whole bunch of, you know, the madness that I, I, I've endured. Let me take it back. And luckily, luckily, um, I got to the point where I was able to exit that lifestyle. And it wasn't through choice. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I made the conscious decision. Like, let me be a better man and improve my health and improve my life. No, I, I got hit by a car in front of my house. <laughs> and I shattered my leg. And I split my head open. And I, I cracked my other leg. And so I was like, <laughs> that happened in June. So I ended up having to move out of my apartment to my grandmother's house because I, you know, I couldn't work and I uh, couldn't walk, couldn't nothing. So I've been able to exit that that harmful lifestyle in order to uh, to go into a more peaceful climate. And it wasn't my choice. So I guess my only advice would be down that path is, you know, if you're going to play the game, you got to expect to get burnt and have an exit route. No, I'm not saying don't get, don't get hit by a car. I think that is probably the worst thing you could do. But certainly, just understand that I don't care what you do. If you have to just like get into weird situations or travel 
or just go about your things or just do something different every day or just meet new people or like go to a concert. You have to do something in your life to develop content to write about. Like a lot of comedians do crazy stuff or say, oh, I'm definitely going there so I got something to write about for a joke. And that's a great way to look at it. But not many writers do that. You know, like a lot of writers are just like, you know, I'm just, I write every morning and you read their stuff and there's just contentless and some people can't avoid that some people are stuck in the nine to five drag most people are stuck in that aspect and they're stuck in that paradigm and it's not their fault hey listen people gotta eat but the general idea is that what needs to happen is just get your mind in a pathway where you're able to take in stimuli, take in ideology, take in different things, and use that in order to craft your writing or, or give you something to write about. See, my stuff is, like, I've been on a writing madness, madness, you know? I've been, uh, because what happens is that I, I can't work for a while. I can't work for a long time, so I'm lucky in this regard where... All I have before me is time. That's all I have. So with this time, I've been writing and, you know, I've got articles coming out at Elite Daily and I've, uh, I became a resident at Lehigh Valley Vanguard. So they're publishing five of my poems and I'm working on a chat book and I'm doing a million different things, but this is, this is new to me. And the one thing that I'm attempting to do is to put all of my energy into this. And I know it's easy to say, oh, you don't have time for for writing or you don't have time to do things, but you definitely do. Everyone has time to do everything. It's just about moving around your time. It's like when people say that they, they, they can't afford something. And I like when people say that because I grew up poor as fuck, right? And when I moved out on my own, I went poorer. You know what I mean? Like, uh... The struggle is real. Like, you ever made a three-course meal with a bag of ramen and half a can of beans? You know what I'm talking about. But the idea is that I learned then in the darkest of times, like, oh, wait a second. If I take my expense here and I move it around or if I do this or I do that, like, I can literally afford to do different things. I just have to move around my finances and, like, get new sources of income, all that jazz. The same thing goes for your time because you could say, oh, I don't have time to write. But if you take away an hour a day that you sit in front of your television just watching, you know, whatever the fuck you're watching. And you say, hey, listen, for that hour, I'm going to write 45 minutes, right? That's 45 minutes. If you get a thousand words out of those 45 minutes or even 500 words, you got seven days a week at 500 words, that's 3,500 words a week, right? That's what? That's 7,000 words every two weeks. So it's 14,000 words a month just by 45 minutes a day. And this is something that I think is extremely important. Extremely. Because this is what is going to be what pushes you like forward in life. And the only reason why I'm saying this, I know I just had this preface in the beginning of this podcast about how I'm not going to be teaching nothing. But in a way, I'm more like talking to myself here because that is the path that that needs to be taken. And 
I don't think poetry's ever going to be dead to bring this back full circle. I don't think poetry's ever going to be dead as long as people are writing and reading poetry or listening to poetry or watching poetry. And we're currently in like this golden age of it. We're in this total golden age of poetry. And even with, you know, with literature, it's a pretty interesting cycle where people are saying that, oh, reading rates are down, but actually literacy is up. Literacy is totally up. And I think smartphones really cured the whole texting thing where people were using these older phones and, you know, just you are, you know, stuff along those lines. But people are totally reading more now. And the fact that self-publishing has evolved, totally evolved, that it's going to be a definitely an interesting time. And um, you could see this easily by looking up, you know, all these romance novels that are all cookie cutter. And I'm not hating on romance writers by any means. I'm just talking about the cookie cutter ones. But every art form goes through this process, this peak in process where things occur. And we see this happen when, like, where the gatekeepers leave or they, they still exist. Like traditional music still exists, right? Traditional movie making is still very prevalent. But by taking away the gatekeepers out of an aspect, you also open up a complete new audience and a completely new group of artists. Like music, there's always been a back market for music, right? Where bands will record a demo tape or a demo CD, pass it around, and you know, and a lot of it sucks. But some of it's good, you know, some of the greatest acts of all time have been found through their demos. Most of them, a good deal of them, they send the demos to studios or, you know, somebody hears a demo by accident or something happens. You know, and with movie making, there's always been an indie market, indie festivals, and, you know, uh, there's always been like B-movies, if you want to call them that, and, you know, um, that's always existed, passing around VHS tapes or DVDs or, and Netflix now is like, the premiere where there's a lot of these indie movies that are just amazing. And there was no big name studio. There was like a couple of kids with some cameras and they made a movie. And of course, you know, for every golden, amazing movie, you're going to have 15 that suck. But if you didn't have those 15 that suck, you wouldn't have that one amazing one. And I find that that's the way it is now with self-publishing, with the advent of it, because... Now, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Like, the first time I ever heard about self-publishing was I was at a Blue Claws game, which is like a minor league team in uh, in New Jersey. You know, like, they have like a uh, stadium and, you know, a bunch of stuff for kids. And I was sitting there and I was talking to um, this guy I knew. Must have been like 12 or 13. And he told me that his daughter, 
just got published. And I was amazed because I'd always wanted to be a writer. And I was like, oh, how'd she get published? He said, oh, she published herself on Lulu. I was like, Lulu? What the hell is that? And, you know, I just, that must have been 2006, 2004 maybe. Around that period, I just went crazy learning about it. And what happened was that at that time, it was so daunting self-publishing like the idea and there was all these things with all these companies like book splurge and just madness and uh like x universe or something whatever it's called or i universe and i was like you know what the hell so what happened is that now that's been that was 11 almost 12 years ago and the whole world's changed okay like self-publishing is insanely easy now where anyone can do it and pretty much everyone is doing it and what that means is that there's like an avalanche of shit coming onto the market. But there's also some like really great stuff. Like Hugh Howie was a self-published author and now he's got all these deals. He's got a movie deal. The guy's taking over the world and he started off self-publishing. And I think what we're going to see in poetry and beyond is like there's more artists getting their work out there. Stuff that would have never been seen back in the day. And sometimes people get rejected from publishers. It's not because you suck. It's because... It's weird or it's, you know, it doesn't fit the market, whatever the hell that means, you know, like, but if you self-publish, there might be a market out there that for you and that you can find your own fans because I've known, actually, I, I only know a couple of authors who went through traditional means of poetry. Other ones, a lot of people I know go through super small indie presses or they publish it themselves. And that's how most of this is done on the background. That's how I found some of my favorite authors now, some of my greatest you know, poets that I, I really admire. And I think with the advent of self-publishing, we're going to really see this like massive, complete, crazy, like more authors just jumping out there. And, and that is going to mean that we're going to see a lot of bullshit and a lot of cookie cutter, a lot of cliched, tired stuff. But guess what? The best part, and some people are going to hate on this, but one of the greatest things I admire about capitalism is that usually the shit that sucks falls to the bottom because people vote with their dollars, right? So if something sucks, no one's going to buy it and then it's going to fade to obscurity. While if people do like it, they're going to put their money on it and it's going to rise to the top. And that's what happened. I remember, don't get me wrong, let me throw it out there because a lot of these self-publishers who I totally support, I support the indie movement, I support indie in general, however, there's some sneaky, slithering sons of bitches out there who try to game the system by doing fake reviews, and I remember um, when I first learned about the whole self-publishing thing, I wanted to get involved immediately, my writing sucked at the time, and uh, I didn't know how to do it, I didn't, you know, I, but I wanted to get involved, so I got involved doing book reviews for this company. It was a company that wanted to review indie authors because at that time, and it might still be the case that indie authors have an issue getting legitimate reviews because they're independent. So what I did was I was like, all right, and I started to give reviews. Like, you know, the people would send me these books and I would review them and then I would post on Amazon or Barnes Noble, whatever area they had. Here's what the funny part was. I got a message by the owner, and I'm not going to say his name. I thought about it. I really thought about just trashing this, like, dude. He's a pretty large-name guy 
in the community. And I really wanted to come out and just trash him and start some early podcast drama. But, eh, I'll let it slide. Namaste, you know? Well, he told me that I was doing the reviews wrong. And I said, what do you mean? And pretty much, he told me that I should give all the independent authors five out of fives. Like, just give them five stars and everything. Even if they sucked. I was like, what do you mean, man? I was like, yo, this book sucks. The one book, it was a science fiction book, had a terrible cover, terribly formatted. Everything about it sucked. I tried to give it credence. The story sucked, the characters sucked, everything sucked. I said, listen, man, this book sucks. And uh, he told me that if I wanted to stay doing reviews for his company, I would have to give every independent book a five-star. So that's that's where the dirtiness comes. This is where the, the dirtiness comes out of this area, right? Where they like want you to to do all these things and and pretty much to cheat the system. And that that will come. Don't get me wrong. That's the way it is in music. It's the way it is in everywhere. Everybody's always trying to get a leg up. They're always trying to game the system. But even with that going on, and even with the crap flooding the market, and even with all these things, we're definitely going to see some new great talent and new great poetry and writing hit the market and it's been happening every single single day and um i'm really excited to see what the what the future holds because i'm going through this process now where i'm self-publishing my first chapbook of poetry because not that i haven't even sent it out nowhere to be honest with you i don't see a purpose because you know this a poet friend of mine brandon deal wants to go on book readings and i'm down and i, I was like yeah i'm really down but I have nothing to read, and I don't want to be that guy with a composition no notebook, you know. So I've been really out there rushing, and I have no intention. Don't get me wrong. Maybe after it's published, I'll send it to some of those award things. But I have no interest right now pitching it to any press, traditional-wise. I'm going to self-publish it myself and drop some money on it and get it out there. And you know what? Maybe a traditional outlet will come, but I don't even need it. My whole idea is that I'm going to go out on the road. And I'm going to sell it at readings. Maybe I'll sell a couple. Maybe, maybe I won't. But the idea is that that's what most of these poets are doing. These poets are just using their books to sell when they're at readings and going on tour. And that's where the beauty of the self-publishing comes. Because, you know, if I go through a traditional publisher, I get picked up. I might have to wait a year or two years to get my book out there. If I go self-publishing, shit, I can have that shit uploaded today. I could have it shipped to me in three days and be on the road by Tuesday, you know? So that's that's where the beauty of all this is coming. But either way, thanks again for listening, guys. This is the Damien Rucci Experiment. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can find me www.damienrucci.com, twitter.com slash damienrucci, facebook.com slash dfrucci. Catch you around. Thanks for listening, guys.